Well, thank you so very much for being here on Friday night. I know it's uh, obviously a commitment that's uh, necessary for God's people to gather together and congregate for special meetings. We don't take it for granted that you're here tonight. We're grateful that you are. And I want to say thank you to the church for all your provisions and kindness that's been shown to us. We've been very blessed since we've arrived. We have been staying at the pastor's home and grateful for their kindness there as well. And uh, today we've had a wonderful morning. We had the opportunity to be with uh, the missionaries today for chapel and and then the young people, we're grateful for a Christian school that emphasizes the things of God. It's thankful for parents who make the sacrifice to send their kids to uh, be involved in Christian education. And then we certainly enjoyed the fellowship today with the missionaries and the staff, and we're grateful for all those blessings. Uh, many of you were here last night, and I told a little story about the meme, right? And I talked a little bit about uh, being in Wisconsin and, you know, my name, Folgers, and all that stuff. So I thought I'd bring the meme with me tonight so, so that you can see it, all right? So there it is, the best part of waking up. So now you have something to nauseate you tomorrow when you get your coffee. You look down and you can see my face swimming around in your coffee. But if nothing else, would you just remember to pray for us and the work that God has called us to do. So I just wanted to bring that thought, bring a little joy in your life this evening. And thank the Lord for the opportunity. Take your copy of God's Word. Let's go together to the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 17 tonight, please. 1 Kings chapter 17. And uh, I am so grateful uh, for God's blessing upon my life. I, um, I, I haven't had much of a chance to share my testimony. I don't know that I will have much of a chance to share my testimony. But just quickly tell you that um, the church that I ended up pastoring in Cleveland, Ohio, was a church in which I was raised. It was a church plant when my parents walked in there for the very first time. It was uh, the second Sunday of the church's existence. A man had come out of Bible college. God had called him to Cleveland to plant a church. He had no idea that God was working in people's hearts and lives and preparing them for him to come. I say to missionaries all the time, talk to men who are, feel like God has called them to a place to plant a church. God does not stir in your heart to go someplace unless God's already at work there. And I truly believe that. And certainly history records that. And that was the case in our family. So I was nine months old. So I didn't walk into church. I got carried into church. And then as a child, I was, I was drugged. I was drugged every week. I was drugged in the church, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday. It was all good, you know. And it really worked in our hearts and our lives. We were raised in a Christian home where our parents were really, really godly people. And I'm so grateful for that. Uh, the interesting thing is that my grandfather lived in the house the church got started in. And at that point, my grandfather wasn't a Baptist. He was an old-time Methodist, and he had gone to a Methodist church where they preached the gospel. And he had heard that gospel and had responded to it. My, my father was, is a twin. I mentioned that last night. And he and his brother got saved as 17-year-old boys in that Methodist church. But they didn't know anything about living for Christ. And it just, it's a long story, but my grandfather lived in this house. He was a tenant. He didn't own it. And in order for this church to get started, he had to move out. And my grandfather made a simple decision, and he said yes. It wasn't an easy decision because he didn't really have to move. The landlord gave him an option, and he said, yes, I'll move out, and not only will do that, but I'll attend the, the very first service. Well, I have to tell you that my grandfather didn't live long enough to see me. I, got, I think he knew I was saved, but he died fairly early in my, my, my young life, but he never knew that I was called to preach, never knew that I would grow up to be the second pastor in that church's history, and now his grand, great-grandson is the third pastor in that church's history. And we never know about just simple, uh, simple decisions and choices that we make how significant they'll be in the history of our family. So now, think about this. Five generations of my family have been impacted simply because my grandfather said yes. That's a good decision, and I'm grateful for it as I stand before you tonight. We're here in 1 Kings chapter 17, and if you're able to stand, would you stand for just a moment as we read this text of Scripture this evening? 
The Bible says in verse number one, And Elijah the Tishbite, was, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, I, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Get thee hence, and turn thee eastward, and hide thyself by the brook Cherith that is before Jordan. And here's God's command. And it shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook. And I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. So... He went and did according, uh, according unto the word of the Lord. For he went and dwelt by the brook, brook Cherith, that is before Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning and bread and flesh in the evening, and he drank of the brook. And it came to pass after a while that the brook dried up, because there had been no rain in the land. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Arise and get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and notice the phrase, and dwell there. And behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came into the gate of the city, behold, the widow woman was there gathering of sticks. And she called, he called to her and said, Fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to fetch it, he called to her and said, Bring me, I pray thee, a little morsel of bread in thy hand. Now notice this, verse number 12. And she said, As the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake, but a handful of meal in a barrel, and a little oil in the cruise. And behold, I am gathering two sticks that I may go in and dress it for me and my son, that we may eat it and die. It's pretty stark, isn't it? It's a difficult situation there. Notice his response, verse 13. And Elijah said unto her, fear not. Don't you love it when God says, fear not? God said to this woman, uh, through this prophet, fear not. Go and do as thou hast said. But here's the caveat. But, but make me thereof a little cake. Notice the word first. Not your leftovers, but first. Make me thereof a little cake first. And bring it to me, and after make for thee and for thy son. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, The barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruise of oil fail until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. And she went and did, according to the saying of Elijah. And she and he and her house did eat many days. And notice, and the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail, until the Lord, uh, 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 according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Elijah. Heavenly Father, thank you for this evening, and thank you for the opportunity to be here at Shenandoah Bible Baptist Church this week for this conference. And thank you for folks that think it's important on a Friday night to be a part of the missions conference. And now, Lord, we're asking for your blessing on the remainder of this service. Lord, as you bless the beginning of it, the, the singing of the hymns and the special and just the times of fellowship. Lord, give us what we need in this hour. Lord, I need your power. I need your blessing. These folks need to hear from you. So, Lord, we're asking that they not be disappointed tonight. Not in us, but, Lord, please do your work, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. Well, this week, of course, in a missions conference, we're talking about missions. We're talking about reaching the world. But we also know that part of that is talking about money. Talking about, you know, giving digging deeper into our pocketbooks, so to speak, and financing the work of, of God. I don't know about you, but I've oftentimes I ask myself questions about things. I have conversations with myself. I don't know about you, but I do that every once in a while. And I've asked myself this question, 
Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why? Why does God ask us? Because he can do anything, right? He can, there's not one thing that God can't do. He really doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. He, he can do whatever he wants to do without me. So why does God ask us to be involved in his work? Why does he ask us to roll up our sleeves? And why, why does he call some men and women to leave the comforts of their homeland, to go, go across the oceans, to strange places, to where they don't know language, to learn a new language and n- learn a new culture, to be able to reach people? Why does, he, why does he do that? Why does he ask people who sit in pews like this to say, hey, dig deeper in your pocketbook so you can help those people go and do what I've called them to do? Why does he do that? Because he can do it without us. Well, God does those unique things in our life because he's asking us to do that so that our, through our sacrifice and obedience, it helps us. It helps us. It helps us because when he stretches us, when he pulls upon us and he makes us uncomfortable and says, I want you to do something that you're not, that's not easy to do. Our faith is strengthened and we develop in our walk with God and we become the stronger Christian that God wants us to be. If God didn't involve us in his great work in this world, it wouldn't help us mature or grow in grace. And God wants to grow our faith and he desires that we would see him do great things. And, and that can't happen unless we are obedient to him. We're all familiar with the, the, the verse in the book of Hebrews that says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. It's impossible. You can't please God if you're not exercising faith. So one of the most precise ways we demonstrate our faith is in this manner of obedience in our giving and as we take something, think about this, as tangible and as necessary as our financial resources, and as sometimes as stretched as they may be, and specifically in an economy that you don't know where it's going, and saying, I, I don't know what the future holds, and how I'm going to be able to deal with these things. And when you take something as necessary as that, and God says, okay, take a part of it, take more than you thought, and, and I'm, I'm stretching you here, and I'm telling you that I want you to give this amount, and when you do that, you say, I don't know how I'm going to make it. And then you watch God step into that. And we get to see God do some great things, not only in our lives, but in, through our lives. And we hear about the testimonies of a, of a Johnny Esposito who goes 10 years to, to four different countries and begins to reach people because you've had a part in his life. And these other young missionaries that are here saying, God, we, we, we feel God wants us to go and you have a part in it. I'm just saying that's a blessing that we get to be a part in those things and we get to step into that. Someone has said, show me your budget and I'll show you what you worship. Yeah, what we, what we think is important is what we spend our money on. So this passage that we're looking at tonight isn't necessarily about money, but notice if you would, it is about a woman who's stretched. And a prophet who's stretched. And God wants, is going to challenge them, both of them, in this matter of faith. We find this story, two people living by faith. In our text we find this prophet Elijah who basically just shows up and, and he has a ministry and a duty to fulfill because God has challenged him to do it and, and yet he's, he's dependent upon someone to help sustain him until, that, until, the, until he finishes this particular work. And God is going to use a widow. We're introduced to a widow. One of the most unlikely people in all the world that God would say, hey, I want you to sustain a prophet. I mean, God could have chosen anybody. He says, I, 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 there's a widow woman. A widow woman. God singled her out. And so there is a widow woman, and, and, and she's going to sustain you. And so God chooses this woman, and God's going to make her face her fears and her insignificance, and her faith will be stretched as far as it can be stretched, and she'll have to trust God to survive. I love this story. It's a wonderful story. 
We don't often think about it in the context of missions, but I think there's a principle here. So I want us to walk through this passage together tonight. Let me give you four truths that I find here in this particular text that will help us. Tonight. Notice, first of all, God wants to involve us when there is a legitimate need in the work of the Lord. God wants to involve those of us who are human beings when there's a legitimate need in the work of the Lord. We find in verses 1 through 8, God has commanded Elijah. Now again, I don't know if you're familiar with this history, but the truth of the matter is, until chapter 17, we, we've never heard of Elijah. It's like all of a sudden he just shows up like a, a meteor in the sky. You know, he's all of a sudden this bright spot. And, and God sends him to, in, into the courtroom of the most powerful man in Israel at this point. He's going to go face King Eli, Ahab. And God says to, to Elijah, look, look, you go in and you confront that king because he's the king of, of the nation of Israel. And you may remember that Israel now has been divided. And we have ten tribes in the north. We have the two tribes in the south. You've got those ten tribes in the north. They don't have one good king, not one good king in their entire history. They're all rotten men. And Elijah, the Bible says, did more than all of them that were before him, wickedly before the Lord. And, of course, he married a sweet woman. Who helped him? Miss Jezebel was not a help to her husband. By the way, ladies, you can help your husband or you can be a hindrance to your husband. The truth of the matter was she was a hindrance to her husband and she caused him to go even further. And God said, okay, they've broken my covenant. You go face them and you go tell them there's a price to be paid for disobedience. That's a message that needs to be preached over and over again, isn't it, in our culture? There is a price to be paid for disobedience. And so in the nation of Israel, God said, you go tell them that there's not going to be any dew or rain. You point your finger at them. You tell them God said, no dew or rain until I show up here again and tell you that it's going to rain. And so with that, the Bible tells us that Elijah turned around and God said, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go down by the brook Cherith and I want you to sit there. And you're going to be able to drink in the brook, and I'm going to send you ravens to feed you. Now, we've all heard of DoorDash and all these modern conveniences, but God had that going a whole long time before someone else came up with it. God said, I'm sending ravens with your breakfast and your supper, and you're going to sit there at the brook, and I'm going to drop off that food. Now, I don't know what they brought, but I, I guarantee it was good stuff because God doesn't send junk to his people, right? So, so he sat down there drinking in the brook, and and, and as days go by, we don't know how long goes by, but the Bible tells us that as days go by, and I suppose he's probably watching this, it's not raining. You know, the, the sentence is no dew or rain. It's, you know, we, we, we can think about rain, but we also understand that there's a moisture that comes out of the ground, but God says it, there's not going to be any dew or rain. It's going to get dry. Well, this man of God is not exempt, even though he's the man of God. He's not exempt from that. So he's sitting by the brook, and he's, he, he's eating of this stuff that God sends him every day. He's watching this brook gets less and less, and the Bible says the brook dries up. But I love the fact that God doesn't forget about the man of God. He says, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go down to Zarephath, down in Zidon. Now, again, a little bit of history will help us understand that Zidon is not exactly Israel. Zidon is where Jezebel came from. And of all the places that God would send this man of God to be sustained by a widow woman, he said, I'm sending you to Zion because there's a widow woman there I've commanded to sustain thee. Now, here's, here's my point. God gave Elijah something to do, didn't he? He said, you go tell the king, no do a rain until I show up. How many of us believe that Elijah has to live to fulfill that purpose? If God said it's going to be done, he's got to live to fulfill that purpose. That means that whatever was necessary for Elijah to survive, God had to supply, and he was going to choose a widow woman to, to, to fulfill that purpose at a point in his life. Amen. I'm here to tell you, church, that I'm sure you're aware of this, but let me just remind you of some things. 
Your church is a legitimate element of God's plan. It is not your church. It is God's church. And if it's God's church, God says, okay, I want my church to go on. And I realize today in this culture in which we're living, it's pretty necessary that we have buildings to meet in. I live in Cleveland, Ohio, and Cleveland, Ohio is a little bit different than Martinsburg, West Virginia. We live on Lake Erie, and we get such a thing called lake effect snow. And I have to tell you that beginning about this time of year, all the way up until maybe, maybe even to May, you can expect snow in greater Cleveland. And I got to tell you, I'm very grateful when I pastored a church there that God gave us some buildings to meet in that had heat in them. But I, you know, I, I, I was, a, I was on the staff and served the staff, came out of, out of college and served the staff of the church for, as just a young man coming out of college. And, and at that point, you know, really didn't, none of those issues about like bills were in, important to me as far as the church was concerned. I wasn't the pastor. I, I, I wasn't involved in the finances. I was just a staff guy. And they said, hey, go do this. And I did it. I was just one that, you know, I was just getting, getting my feet wet in ministry. And at a point, the pastor started talking to me. He says, you know, I, I really believe that, you know, I prayed for a while. God sent me someone to, to groom and to, to prepare to be my successor. I think you may be that man. And I got to tell you, at that point, I, I, I couldn't hardly believe that he was saying that to me because I never envisioned that. So when I had been on the staff for about 12 years, he, he talked to the church and, and they voted and they made me the co-pastor of the church. And still at that point, I'm not the pastor. I don't have to worry about the bills. I, I just do my thing and, and, and I'm preaching and I'm counseling and trying to learn the ropes and all those kind of things. And then finally, on September the 3rd, 1995, our pastor said, okay, that's my final Sunday. So all of a sudden now he's stepping off the scene. He's pastor, started the church pastor for 37 years and now... All of a sudden, that night, that weight of responsibility shifts from him to me. And I have to tell you that at that point, I didn't really think too much about it until that night. And you know, you, you, you would think that that's the happiest day of your life. Okay, now you're, you're going to pastor the church that you grew up in. And, and those people literally want you to be their pastor. That's amazing to me. You know, they, they helped train me and, and knew all about me. And they still wanted me to be their pastor. And I'm thinking to myself, that, that's pretty amazing. But, but all of a sudden, I, I have to tell you, you can ask my wife, this is true. I went home that night and I didn't sleep. I, honestly, I, I was scared to death. I was scared to death because all of a sudden now the responsibility of that church, you know, when there was a problem in something, it was beyond, beyond my pay grade. I said, you know, I'm not the pastor. There's his office. The, the financial secretary didn't come talk to me about the financial issues of the church. But all of a sudden now she's coming into my office. And I have to tell you the church that I pastor in Cleveland was what I would consider a significant work. We were, we were running over a thousand. We, we had, uh, we had uh, a Christian school. We had over 50 employees. And I have to tell you that the electric company that provided our electricity in the summer for our, our, for our, our air conditioning and and lights in the winter, and then the gas bill in the, in the winter. I didn't think too much about it, but all of a sudden I'm looking at bills that are $10,000 a month. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I'm sure that they realize we're a charitable organization. And they're not going to necessarily ask us to pay all of this, are they? Well, that, that bill was just as legitimate that they sent to our church as the one they sent to my house. And so I was obligated to pay the one for my house, and so we're obligated to pay the one for the church. If we're going to have a church, and we're going to meet, and we're going to turn the lights on, we have an obligation. And you know what I came to realize? It's really not my responsibility, but it's God's responsibility. It's the people of God's responsibility. And part of my responsibility as a church member to help meet those needs through my giving. 
It's not illegitimate to say that that it's wrong for these missionaries to come to you and say, hey, God has called us someplace, but we need your help. We need your prayer support. I cannot cannot emphasize enough. It's not just financial support that they're here for. They're here for prayer support so that when they leave here, that you are people who are praying for them, literally holding the rope in the realm of spiritual aspects of them going to go someplace. Think about this. They're, they're, They're descending, so to speak, to the very gates of hell. Because Jesus said he's going to start his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And I want to tell you something, the gates of hell don't move. That means that we have to go to the very gates of hell and snatch them. And for them to do that, to, dis- to ascend to that point and to go to another culture, it's not unreasonable for them to say, would you partner with us and pray for us, but would you also financially help us to stay there? And folks, I'm saying to you tonight that it's a legitimate need just as much as a legitimate need for Elijah to be sustained. It's as, it's as legitimate for you to turn your lights on and to pray the, pay, pay the printing bill so that you have tracks and uh, pay the gas bill so you have gas to put in the buses and to pay your staff. All that stuff's legitimate and God's people are uh, allowed to be a part of it through their giving. I've never resented being a tither. You know, I've, a lot of, I've met a lot of bitter Christians in my life. And you know, as I, sometimes I would probe them, Here, here's what I find. They weren't giving. Happy Christians don't bemoan giving. They're happy in the Lord and they're happy to be able to say, I get to be a part of the work of God. And I'm here to say to you tonight, God wants to involve you and he wants to involve me in the legitimate work that he's doing in this world. And certainly he did in the life of Elijah and he wants to do that here in our lives as well. Would you notice the second thing in this text? God blesses the individual that hears his voice and obeys that voice that God speaks. In verse number nine, we see in our text that Elijah heard the voice of God giving him clear direction. He was to leave Cherith, the brook Cherith, because it's dried up. And he said, I want you to go down to Zidon. Notice that God says, I've commanded a widow woman to sustain you. I know when I speak as a man, that part of being a man is being a provider. That's what my dad taught me. That was my responsibility as a man to provide. And I started, I started working when I was 14 years old. It wasn't a full-time job, but I, my parents weren't wealthy, and so I, uh, I, I looked for an opportunity, and God gave me some opportunities to make some money, and that was, that was a good thing. I was, I was happy to begin to be able to be a contributor. I don't want to be a taker. I want to be a contributor. So I learned how to, to, to do that early in my life, and, and, and I just have to tell you, it's just part of who we are as men. I mean, if you're, uh, if you're the right kind of man, you, you want to take care of your family. That's just part of it, isn't it? That's who, who God makes us to be. And I look at this story and I see this man of God, and I, I have to tell you that Elijah's not some wimp. I mean, he, he's not a, I don't think he's a Tarzan beating out his chest and saying, Look at me, I'm a man. But would you agree with me? It takes some manhood to walk into the most powerful man in the nation and point your finger at him and say, God said? Yeah, he's, he's a man's man. By the way, I, I would like to have the opportunity to speak to some of our leaders, wouldn't you? God gave him that opportunity. But now God says, okay, here's what I want you to do, Elijah. I want you to go down to Zidon, and I'm going to ask a widow woman there to sustain you. Now, gentlemen, I don't know about you, but I would find that very humbling. I would find that difficult to deal with. 
But Elijah, in order to be sustained, has to be obedient to God. I have to tell you, as a, as a preacher, as a man, as a, now someone who's doing mission work and in some respects living off the, the gifts of God's people in order to be able to sustain, I'm just saying that it's not always easy. It's not like we're standing up here and saying, would you give us money? No, no, but, but you ha- we, have to, we have to do being obedient to what God says. And God said, Elijah, here's what I want you to do, and here's who, how you're going to be sustained. There's a widow woman that's going to have to take care of you, and so he has, to, he has to meet this challenge. He has to be obedient. And think about this. The widow woman here has to hear God, and he has to, she has to respond in faith to do as she's instructed, and it wasn't easy for her either. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. When I was a boy growing up, I, I mentioned my father, and my father, has a, you may be able to tell in my preaching, well, my father was very instrumental in my life in so many respects. And I mentioned to you that he was a truck driver. I told you that story last night about him getting injured. And one of the things that happened when I, probably a couple of years before he got injured, my dad was, has always been a car guy. When I say car guy, he's just always been interested in automobiles and you know, and I've kind of gotten some of that. But one of the things my dad really was interested in was it was rebuilding automobiles. So as he's driving his truck one day, and this is back probably in the mid-1960s, he's out making his deliveries on his way home. He sees a car for sale in the front yard. Now, this wasn't just any car. This was a 1932 Auburn. And if you know anything about classic automobiles, there were made in the United States and in, in Indiana, there was the Auburn, there was a Cord, and there was a Duesenberg, and those were classic automobiles, like the Elliott Ness mobiles, you know, the big swooping fenders and the big white wall tires and the big chrome headlights. And, and I mean, these were just like, these were classic automobiles. Well, he found this car for sale. However, when he found it, it didn't look like much. That car had the swooping fenders and the body was solid. Somebody had, had already rebuilt the engine, the transmission, but they got in a situation where they needed some money. So I think my dad bought that car. I think he bought it for between $500 and $700. And he brought it home and he's working and he's trying to take care of his family. He doesn't have a lot of money, so it sat in there in the garage. And I still remember as a kid going out there and getting on those fenders and using it for a sliding board. And it was just, it was just a pretty cool place. And I get behind there, and, you know, we play like we're cops and robbers and, and, and we're running, you know, and, and, and we're, uh, you know, we're being Elliot Ness and chasing the bad guys and all that stuff. I still remember those days in that car in the garage. And, and, and so finally, my dad got to the point where he had a little bit of money and he began the restoration work. And so they took all the chrome, stripped all the chrome off the car, sent it away and it got chrome plated. And it came back, and then it was setting there, and then he got to be able to paint the car, and, and it had a, what was called a brome top, which is a cloth top. And the, when he got it, all the, the, the springs were out of the seats, the paint, the paint was all faded, the, the cloth had been torn off the top of it, so it didn't look like much. But he began this restoration work, so it's now painted, and I remember going to the upholstery shop, picking out the upholstery. They put new carpet in it, repulsed it, rebuilt those seats, and then put that cloth top on it and brought it home. And it still, it, it looked really good, but it still needed something. It needed those big white wall tires. So that'd be special order. And they brought them in, they, then they mounted them, and, they, and, and, and the, the lugs that held those tires on were chrome plated. So it was just, when it was done, I got to tell you, it was one of those cars that when you backed it out of the garage and you pulled down the street, you pulled up to a stoplight or up to a stop sign, people were standing around going, because you just didn't see them every day. This was a classic automobile. This was not even a Model T. This was a classic uh, 1932 Auburn. So my dad had that from, from the time I was in middle school, pro- probably the time he, he started re- restoring it. 
So he had all the way to, through I was high school. He had all the way through I was in college. And he had it all the way through probably into my 20s. And I'm almost 30 years old. And in, in, in the middle of the 1980s, our church was in a situation where we had expanded our parking lot and the church needed some money. And I have to tell you, that car meant a lot to my dad. It's one of those cars that really, I mean, it, was, it, was, it wasn't something he worshipped, but it was something that was important to him. But the church now was, was putting sewers in and needed to blacktop the, the driveway and, and the church didn't have the money to do it just to go out and say, well, we, we can afford to do this. So, okay, it has to be done, so we have to dig deep and, and, and do it. And I still remember my dad selling that car, and nobody else knew, but I knew, that he sold the car and gave a good, good portion of the money to the church. And I have to tell you, as a young man watching that, that impressed me. Because what it said to me is that my dad loved God more than he loved that car. And he wasn't going to worship a car, but he was going to worship God. And when God spoke to him, he was going to obey, and he did that. I'm here to tell you that God wants to do the same thing through us. He wants to, us to hear his voice and he wants us to obey him. This week, we're asking to seek his will of God, uh, the will of God in your giving to your church's missions program. An act of obedience, if, as we watch God work, will do some pretty amazing things. And so it's vitally important. Would you notice the third thing in the sex? God blesses the person that surrenders what they have as little as it may seem. Well, in verse number 12, that we find Elijah shows up there at Zidon. And the Bible says as he's coming into the city, notice what happens is it says and he's, in, in verse number 10, and so he went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, the widow woman was there gathering of sticks. Now, I don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us, she wasn't like she was wearing this sign saying, I'm the woman. But the Bible says that God had told him that he had commanded the widow woman so evidently, somehow, God spoke to Elijah and said, that's her. So he's walking into the, into the gate, and I have to believe that if God spoke to Elijah, he had to speak to the woman. Would you agree with me? Because she obviously has to know she's got to respond. So maybe she's just a little bit nervous, because obviously, as we're looking at the text, hey, this, this famine, this drought has affected Zarephath as well. That's what the, the text tells us, that they're being affected as well. So maybe this widow woman's a little bit nervous, and and as a result of that, you know, she's, she's, uh, she's saying, okay, what's he going to ask of me? So here he comes into the gate of the city, and there she is, and he looks at her and says, um, I'm thirsty. I'm thinking, she's probably thinking, I can, I can handle that. I'll go get you a drink of water. And I want you to notice, please, that as she's going, he says, and by the way, would you make me a little cake first? Would you, would you make me a little cake? And she turns around and says, and, and I, again, I don't know if you do this with your Bible reader or not, but I, I imagine things. And, and I, I mean, it's like, these, these aren't just words on the paper. This is, this is a, a picture. So, so he walks in, and there she is. He says, hey, would you give me a drink of water? And, and, he, and, and listen, look, even water would have to start being scarce even there at this point. But, but there must still be a well where you can get water. So she said, okay, I can do that. But she's going, and he says, make me a little cake. And I can just see her. She's going one direction to get the water, and all of a sudden, she's making me a cake, and she pivots. And she looks at him and says, do you not understand? I, I, don't, I, I don't have a cake. I have a little meal and a little oil. 
And when you came, I was picking up a few sticks and I was going to go mix that, that cake together. I was going to take that meal and then oil, make a cake for me and bake it for me and my son. And we were going to eat. And listen, and we were going to die. That's all we have. Now, ladies, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'll ask my wife, I said, honey, uh, what do we have in the house to eat? You know, and, and honestly, you know, we're Americans and we're, you know, we're, we're pretty well taken care of, right? We're, most people in this room. We, so, so she said, well, there's not much. When I, and I start, you know, I go out in the garage and we got a, a shelf full, of, we got shelves out in the garage where we keep some of our non-perishable goods and we got a freezer out in the garage that's got some stuff in it and, and then we've got cabinets in the, in the house and it's got stuff in it and there's a freezer next to the refrigerator in the house and it's got stuff in it. There's a refrigerator that's got some stuff in it and I'm just saying, well, we may not have much, but we could probably live for a couple of weeks on what we don't have, right? That was always, we don't have much, but we can still live. Well, ladies, when this woman said she didn't have much, she didn't have much. It wasn't like there was a pantry behind the house where she said, well, yeah, I've got some stuff stocked away. No, no, the Bible says that's all she had. So here, here's our thinking, you know, well, you know, you may be sitting here and I say, preacher, you don't know my circumstances. You don't know how little I really have. Can I tell you, it's not really about what you have or don't have. It's about your heart and its willingness to surrender to what, and say, Lord, whatever I have is yours. See, some people want to excuse poor people from giving. You say, well, you know, they're just too poor. They, they should, they, you know, they, they're, not, they're not wealthy. They shouldn't be able to, to be asked to be con- contribute. I don't find any place in the Bible where God exempts poor people. In fact, poor people in the Bible are some of the greatest givers there were. I still remember being in about seventh grade when this concept of faith promise giving was introduced to our church there in Cleveland. I was just a kid in junior high. And they came and they introduced this concept of faith giving. And, and at, at that point, I'm not working. You know, I'm just a, a junior high kid going to school. I'm, I'm about 12 years old. And they're talking about this idea of faith giving. And so here, here was what was going on. My parents uh, gave me, we were at that point, we had no Christian school. I was in a public school. And so they gave me, said, here's $2 for your lunch every week. This is what you have for your lunch, $2. Now, you can't even buy, you know, hardly anything for $2, but I'm an old guy, so $2 back in my day went, went a, a whole lot farther than it did today. And so you could go and you could buy some milk, and, and if I played my, if I dealt well with my money, I may be able to get a, maybe a hot lunch uh, once or twice a week on that $2, and, and I could get the milk for my lunch, and I brown bag the rest of it. But you know, I, I was convicted that, hey, if, if God gave me $2, 20 cents of that wasn't even mine, it was God, so I had to tithe on it. And then they started talking about this faith promise thing. And I thought to myself, well, you know, I'm in junior high, but I want to be involved. And, and so I thought, well, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to step up. I'm, I'm, I don't have a job, but I'm going to give my, my 25 cents to, uh, I'm going to give 20 cents to, to tithe, but I think I'm going to give a quarter to mission. So I gave more than my tithe to mission. So here was my thinking. Okay, I'm going to give a quarter on Sunday. And on my way to school tomorrow morning, I'm going to find a quarter on the sidewalk. I just thought God was going to rain money down from heaven. That's the way it's going to work. And I'd give my quarter, and somewhere that week I'd find, I'd find my, another quarter. It didn't work that way. Sometimes I, I, I had some, but there were times, listen, there were times when I, I didn't. I just surrendered what I had, and I was like, okay. But you can look at me and tell that I did not starve to death. Okay? God took care of me. I, I, I survived. So we started in junior high, and then I got in, into high school, and it, God called me to preach, and so I'm, I just turned my life on and said, okay, God, whatever, and so I'm working, 
and I'm involved heavily in missions through my high school years, saving money, trying to go to college, and I had a car to take care of, and, and all those type of things, and I'm putting money aside, and I have to buy all my own clothes, and I was even at that point paying my own school tuition. But I thought, you know what? This is God's money. This is faith promise. I need to do that. And then we got into college, and you know, back in the day when we went to college, you know, it was a different day. We, people didn't have to have everything, but my wife and I, we got married right after our first year of Bible college, and we moved in a 12 by 65 foot trailer. We had a bunch of hand-me-down furniture, and you know, we were happy as could be. And, and then before college was out, we had a baby, and, 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 and you know, I got to tell you that money got real tight. I mean, it was real tight. We'd go by the A&W root beer stand, and they had hot dogs for 25 cents, and we'd be go home on a Sunday night and say, honey, do we have an extra 25 cents? And I'm not kidding you. I'd say to her, do we have an extra 25 cents? Can we stop and get a hot dog? And she'd look at me and say, nope. But I want to tell you that we got out of college. We went back to our home church and worked, and we were still involved in tithing and giving emissions. I never thought about not doing those things, no matter what my financial situation was. Never thought one time, I'm not going to do this. And I have to tell you, I'm a rich man tonight. Not rich financially, but I am rich spiritually. I have three sons who are all married to good women, and they are in church every Sunday. Two of my sons are in ministry. I've got a grandson who's in Bible college tonight. I'm telling you, you cannot buy the the blessings of God upon your life. But God is good because he rewards his people. And I'm here to tell you, I don't care what you have in in this building tonight. I don't care how rich you are, how poor you are. You have a legitimate need to be, and this church has a legitimate right to say, you have to be involved, and you should be involved. And God is saying, be involved in what I want you to do, because I'll take care of you. I want you to notice the final truth that we find in this text tonight. Would you notice in this story that there are times when we must give first and then trust God to meet our needs? I think it's interesting. Verse number 12, she says, I don't have much. I've got a can full of meal and a little oil in a barrel. We're going to make one cake. We're going to eat it. We're going to die. And Elijah said to her, Fear not. Go and do what thou hast said. But the caveat is, but, but what? But make me a little, little cake thereof first. First. I mean, honestly, I, I, I looked at the story and I, I look at it at times and I think, man, it seems so bold. It almost seems unreasonable. I mean, here, here's this preacher and he's saying, okay, I understand you don't have much. But I want you to go in that kitchen and I want you to make that cake. And I, I don't want you to give to you, you and your son, uh, you know, divide it. Uh, let's take it, let's divide it in three. You, you have a third and he has a third and I have a third. No, no. He's saying, go make the cake and then you bring it to me. First, first. Again, God said, I don't, I, don't want to, I don't want to wait till you pay all your bills to see if there are leftovers. No, I want, you to, I want you to take care of the responsibility here first. So she has now a decision to make. And folks, I want you to put yourself in this story. Again, I said this woman doesn't have, it's not like she's got excess. She's got that handful of meal in a barrel and a little oil on the cruise. And I don't know how old this son is. But all you mamas that are in here, you know how it is when your kids are hungry. I mean, when those babies want something to eat. I mean, honestly, and, and you're looking and say, okay, I got, I got this, this is all I have. 
And this guy is saying, I want you to make me a cake first. That's bold stuff. Now she's got a choice to make. Is she going to believe God and trust him? Or is she going to look at this, the, the physical needs that are around her and say, well, okay, I understand what you're saying, but I can't do that. I don't know how hard that was, but I have to believe it was hard for her to, to, to go into that kitchen. She, she goes and she gets that meal, and, and honestly, she opens the, the barrel, and sure enough, there's just enough there for one cake. She pours it out. She's got just enough oil in that cruise to make one cake. She mixes it together, and she bakes it. And, and I, when you're hungry, do you know how good things smell? My mama used to say, when you're hungry, son, you'll eat anything. But I can only imagine that that cake smelled good. And now that cake is hot, and now it's, it's ready to be, per, you know, somebody's going to eat it, and now she's got it, now she's, she's got it, now what's she going to do? Is she going to take it and give it to the man of God, or is she going to give it to her son to eat? And the Bible tells us that she brought it to the man of God, and he didn't eat it of it. And I don't know how Elijah did that, but I, I can only imagine that it had to be hard for him, too. Now he says to her, okay, you did what you're supposed to do, go back to the kitchen. And I can just imagine her saying, you know what, Why? I was just in that kitchen. I just emptied the barrel and I just emptied the oil. There isn't anything. I said, go back to the kitchen. All right. Back in the kitchen she goes and she gets that barrel. Wait a minute. This thing was empty. Where did that meal come from? Look, look, I don't know that it, I don't think it ever filled up. I think that every day she had to exercise some faith. Every day she had to trust God. But, but there was just enough there to make another cake for her and her son. And, and she made another one. And, and the Bible says that they did eat, both she and he did eat, until God sent rain upon the earth. Now, we may look at that as saying, wasn't that unreasonable that God would say, give him first? Well, let me ask you a question. What if she said, no, I'm not doing it? What do you think would have happened? She would have had one cake and they would have died. There's no question about that. They would have died because she had lived in disobedience. But because she was obedient and because she did what God said and gave to God first, the Bible says that she and her son were sustained. Do you know that boy grew, grew into manhood? Do you know that young man, God, Elijah raised him from the dead and he became a testimony to the king of, of Israel at a later point? All because her, her mama was obedient. I'm just telling you that it's not always easy to do what God asks us to do. But I'm telling you that God is no man's debtor. You and I were living in this situation where we all of a sudden were seeing things go out of control. My wife says to me every time I go to the grocery store, I can't believe how much things cost. It's shocking. I was just out in British Columbia preaching a couple of weeks ago. We think gasoline's expensive here. It was $9 U.S. a gallon out there. $9. And so we, we look at this economy, we sit, look at all that's going on, and we, we see all these prices escalating. We may be sitting here tonight saying, you know, I don't know what I'm going to be able to do for this mission thing. Because, man, I feel like I'm already stretched. Here's what I, I, I'm, I'm asking of you, and here's what your pastor's asking. You seek God. You ask God what he wants you to do. Because I'm here to tell you that when you listen to God, and he tells you what to do, when you obey him, he is then obligated to take care of you. He has to. That's his plan. He has to sustain you like he sustained this widow. She got, this was a legitimate need. She got involved. 
She surrendered what she had as little as it may seem. She, she, she said, I'll, I'll, I'll take what I have. I'll give it to God and I'll do it first. And God blessed her. I could tell you many stories of how God has blessed my life and the life of the church. I'm not going to take the time to do that today. I'm going to tell you one story. I'm going to be finished. My wife and I came out of Bible college. I said, said you know, we were, we, were, we had, uh, came out of Bible college with one son and we, we had been on the staff maybe a year and a half and then we had another son and then we were on the staff a couple more years and we had another son. We had three sons all within, uh, you know, I don't know, what, four years or so. I think that's kind of the way it worked. They were all 21 months apart. And so you know, we had all these little rugrat stair-step kids and, you know, back in the day, some of you may remember this, that we were living in the day of Jimmy Carter. And Jimmy Carter had our interest rates up to 18 and 19 percent for home mortgages, 15, 16 percent. Some of you remember that. Some of you younger people look at me with like, really? Yeah, it was real. We, we lived through it. It was unbelievable. So I'm so uh, I'm on the staff at the church, and five years in, the Lord burdens my heart to start a young married couples class. And so we started that young married couples class, and God blessed it. I mean, it just really God blessed it. We started with a handful. It wasn't long, we, uh, a couple, maybe a year or two, and God bless it, we were running 50, 75, and then we got to 100. So we, just, we decided, well, okay, we'll split the class. We did that again and grew the class to 100, we split it again. So we, we had three classes that came out of this one class. And I tell you that because about midway through that, that process of seeing God bless the class, interest rates, Reagan came into office and interest rates started to drop. And now all of a sudden, now they're getting down to, 12 and 13%. And all, all of a sudden, I got these young couples in my class that are coming in and saying, hey, guess what? We just bought a house this week. Well, my wife and I, we're, we're happy for them, but here we are. We're in the ministry. We're serving the Lord. We're doing what God asked us to do. We're, we're living in rental property, you know? And, and we, we moved into a, a, a double upstairs a, 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 in the inner city of Cleveland and lived there for a while. And then as our families expanded, we found a side-by-side duplex and we lived there. It's a three-bedroom. And it was a nice place, don't get me wrong, but it wasn't, it wasn't like my own belong to somebody else. I was paying a rent payment. So they're, they're coming and say, hey, we bought a house. Well, we're excited for you. And I was. But then I went in my prayer closet and I'm complaining to God. You ever done that? I'm, 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 uh, one day I'm saying to God, God, you know, you know I, I'm so happy for these people and, and you're asking us to minister to them and, and I'm glad to do it. I'm glad to be a help to them. And you're giving them a house, but we're living in a rental property. I don't know about you, but God speaks to me. I mean, not audibly. It's not like, Kevin. No, no. But God did speak to my heart. Here's what he said. Um, excuse me. You haven't even asked me for a house. You're here complaining about not having a house, but you haven't even asked me for a house. So I said, okay, I'm dense, but I'm not that dense. Okay, I'm asking. Right now, I'm asking, Lord, you give me a house. 30 days. 30 days. I'm standing at church one Sunday night after church, and a man in our church came up to me and says, you know, my uh, mother having to live to move to Florida. She's got a house for sale. You know anybody needs a house, do you? You wouldn't have to want to buy a house, would you? And I said, well, yeah, I'd love to buy a house, but I, I, I don't have money for a down payment. I can't afford a mortgage at this point. You know, go get a mortgage. He said, well, this house, you don't need money. I said, well, talk to me. You're talking my language. And basically what he did is he worked a land contract and our, our rent went up by $100 a month, but he took that $100 and began to set it aside for a down payment. And three years after we started the land contract, interest rates dropped down to 
get this, nine and a half percent. We thought we were died and went to heaven. And we went and got an FHA mortgage. We lived in that house for 10 years. We lived there and God doubled our money in 10 years. It was just amazing what God did. But it was all because I asked God for something. But I couldn't ask God for something if I hadn't already been obedient. See, we want God to give us things, but we don't want to live in obedience. I'm just here to tell you, you have to listen to the voice of God. And this week, God is saying something, and he wants to say something to you about this offering and about these missionaries. The question is, are we listening? Are we willing to be obedient to what he says? It may not seem like much, but it may be the difference. See, I'd rather trust God than the U.S. government, wouldn't you? I sure would. God, God has a whole lot better track record than the United States government does. And I'd rather trust him then trust them. Let's bow our heads together in prayer tonight. Thank you so much for being here. I preached a little longer than I wanted to preach this evening, but I pray that God has spoken to your heart. This widow woman becomes a, a picture. Just living in obedience and trusting God and asking God for things and saying, God, I need your help. I, I, I can't do this myself. I want to ask your parents if has, has God spoken to your heart about your children? You have a parent in here. You, you need to have surrendered your family to the Lord, to your children to the Lord. Say, God, they're not mine, they're yours. Hey, grandparents, have you prayed for your grandkids that God would work in their hearts to call them to, to be missionaries and preachers in, in, in the ministry? All of us want, we want our grandkids and want our children to be around us, but you know, God calls some of them and we, we need to be willing to surrender that. You give it to God first. This week, it may be difficult for somebody to make a decision about this offering because of, of the financial situation. I'm here to tell you, if you listen to the voice of God, you won't go wrong. You've got to seek Him and ask Him. Because that God will help you. He's the only God that can do that. There's no other God but Him. And He loves His people. He loves you. And he loves me. Let's stand together for prayer tonight. Father, please bless our time of invitation, Lord, as we seek you about your plan. Lord, I pray that you have used this message tonight to speak to hearts. Help us now, Lord, to respond accordingly, we pray. Our heads are bowed and the piano begins to play. If God has spoken to you.